Last week, Selena did a great job teaching us about the book of Ruth. Uh, home run job. I'm so very proud of her. I think she, she taught that message a total of five times in English and Spanish, and I'm really, really proud of her and, and how she did and how she ministered. I want to talk to you a little bit about the transition that we're experiencing as we're looking at the story. The story is our guide, the story is our guide through the Bible. It's a 31 chapters of chronological approach to God's word. But we were in the book of Judges two weeks ago. And then last week, Selena took us through the book of Ruth, And now this week, we're in the book of 1 Samuel. Now, when we started this journey together, most of us were like, oh, this is going to be exciting. I get to really learn God's word. I get to see how it flows chronologically, how it goes together. And it's typically about this point, about a third of the way through on the journey, that people start losing a little bit of mojo. It's like, well, this is getting a little, a little um, uh, not really relevant. Well, I'm going to try to make it as relevant as I possibly can to your life, but it's important that you know the whole story. The way God did this was in the book of Judges. When we looked at those 11 judges, one woman and 10 men uh, that led this new nation of Israel, which why is there a nation? Because Adam and Eve sinned back in the beginning. And God put into motion at that, play, at that point a plan, a plan to get his children back, humanity back into relationship with him. And remember, he's God. His plan was to form a nation. This is the plan that he chose. So we're gonna follow his plan. And his plan was to form a nation. Well, that nation had all kinds of problems. They went into captivity, into bondage in Egypt for hundreds of years. God then released them. Remember, Moses let my people go in the 10 plagues. And so God got them out of captivity. He allowed them to cross over the Red Sea. Then they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. Lots of problems took place. And then at that point, Joshua took over and began leading this nation that had no nation, no land at this point. They were wanderers. They were nomads. God then, through Joshua, took them into the promised land, and miracle after miracle after miracle took place. Through the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. We have Gideon. Uh, we have um, uh, with Jephthah. Um, we have um, uh, Samson. All of these judges that God put as rulers over his nation. Now, a judge isn't a black gown, gavel, guilty, not guilty. A judge is the spiritual, the military, uh, and the, um, the economic um, uh, leader of, of the day, the judicial leader of the day. A judge is all of the above. So God was putting a judge in charge of his nation. How many of you know God has a right to do what he wants to do with his nation, right? And well, but there's a problem. Uh, during this period, the people begin to revolt against This judge concept, stop, hit the pause button. Then we go from Judges to this book of Ruth, which is really interesting. Why is that there? I mean, we can understand the connection between Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, if you read it and you were here last week, and the connection between Jesus. But why is that story chronologically right in the middle of all of this that God is building his nation? Because think of it this way. God is giving us a broad picture in the book of Judges, of how he's going to rule his nation that's going to bring people back to him. Then he takes a, hits the pause button, and he gives us a very, very focused view of a story. And this story is about a family, an intimate look at a family, individuals. Because we're not just numbers to God, we're individuals. And he gives us this intimate look at this, this widow woman named Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, and then she meets Boaz, and they get, they get married, 
And we know that they are the great, great, great grandparents of David, who is the great, 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 great grandparents of Jesus. And so without that story of, of Ruth, we wouldn't have David, and we wouldn't have Jesus. So God gives us a very, very focused look. Now we get into the book of 1 Samuel, and God kind of takes a wide-angle lens again and helps us to see what he's doing in developing this, this nation. Well, if you go back before the book of Ruth into this book of Judges that we looked at before, the book of Judges ends with this sentence. It says, in those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. End of the story. And everyone did as they saw fit. To me, it sounds a whole lot like today in culture. And everyone did as they saw fit. It's, it kind of sums up the book of Judges. All the violence, all the oppression, all the idolatry, all of the sin that took place is all in that historical book. And everyone did as they saw fit. It's a recipe for disaster. And from that final verse of the book of Judges, skipping over the book of Ruth, which is a focused story, to now the book of 1 Samuel, nothing has changed. There's still not a king. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. If it feels good, do it. If, it, if you think it's good, then go ahead and do it. Things are still pretty bad. Israel is still under tremendous oppression. Remember I told you about a couple weeks ago about the Bloods and the Crips, the Amalekites and the, and the, and the, uh, the, the Philistines. Um, and so they're still trying to attack them. So they're still surrounded by all of these evil gangs, these thugs are all around their nation and they're threatening them. It doesn't, they're, they're, there's no end in sight for the wars and the rumors of wars. It kind of feels a little bit like today. Now, if you read chapter 10 in the story, and I hope that you did. If you're online, I hope you picked this up on Amazon or stopped by the, one of our churches and picked up one of these. Uh, but we want you to read a chapter a week. If you read chapter 10 in the story in the past week, then you read about a woman by the name of Hannah. Hannah uh, was, uh, it's a great story about how God helped this woman through God's kindness who could not have a child. And so God allowed Hannah and her husband to have a son, and um, they wanted to dedicate their son to God. So they dedicated him to God. In fact, they didn't just dedicate him like we dedicate our children in church, and then we take them home with us. They dedicated him so much that they committed him to being entrusted to being raised by the priest, Eli. And his name was Samuel. This little boy's name was Samuel. So they, they dedicate their child, they give their child to the priest to raise up little Samuel as a priest in training. Well, Eli, who is the priest currently, has two boys of his own. They're little rugrats is what they are. Those two little boys aren't behaved. They don't follow the precepts of God. They don't follow their, their dad's leadership. And so what happens is Samuel grows up in the house of Eli and Samuel becomes the priest over Israel. So now he's the spiritual leader over the nation of Israel. But remember, it says at the end of the book of Judges, it says, in those days, everyone did as they saw fit. So it's a mess. It's a mess. Now, what I want to do for my part in this chapter, which is rather long, has a lot of different angles we could focus on. But what I want to do is I want to fast forward a few decades. I want to fast forward in Samuel's life. Samuel, remember that little boy that was dedicated unto God, that was raised by the 
priest Eli in his home. Samuel is now an adult. He's the priest over all of Israel. But Samuel isn't just an adult. He's approaching his retirement years. And the people begin to get upset. So the people begin to talk to the elders. And the elders get, a, um, uh, get really upset, and they begin to protest. And they begin to picket. And they begin to um, make demands of Samuel, of the priest. I hope you're staying with me. Here's what they do. Is I, I envisioned this, and you read it this week, of them being outside his home, marching around and rallying, saying, we want a king. Give us a king. King or die. King or go home. We, we want a king. Give us a king. And they're marching, and they're rallying, and they're protesting, and they're mad. They're frustrated. They have a narrow, very narrow view, vision of, of what life is. They think that by having a king, all of their problems are going to go away. They believe that by having a king, that it was going to be happy, happily ever after. They thought this was the solution to their problem. Everybody thought this was the solution to their problem, except for the God of the universe knew this was not the solution to their problem. And so this angry group of protesters is approaching their nearly senior citizen lifetime of service priest who's led them through tremendous challenges. They are approaching him with anger in their hearts and they're screaming out that they want a king. We read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 8 on page 135 if you're looking in the story. And I'd like to read it to you directly from it, from the story about a third of the way down, page 135. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. So they approached Samuel. They said to him, you were old. All right, well, that's kind. And your sons do not follow your ways. Well, that hurts, but yeah, you're right. Now appoint, appoint us a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Oh, boy, oh, boy. So here they are, demanding that Samuel appoint for them a king. And we need to understand this. God tells Samuel this straight up. He's like, listen, I want you to know they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. The people are rejecting God. It's, it's not you, it's me. I was their king, God is saying, but apparently I wasn't good enough for them. Now we look at that and go, dang, what were they thinking? And yet we could be in that exact same position ourselves. And Samuel doesn't like this at all. So as we read, Samuel goes into a season of prayer and he dialogues and he talks to God. And after he comes out of that season of talking to God, he goes and he addresses the people, and he tells them, listen, the king that you want is not gonna be all that you can imagine. This is going to be really hard for you. Now, you need to understand, a king is gonna make you a servant. A king is gonna turn you into a housekeeper and a soldier and a, and a farmer. And by the way, you've never paid taxes before. You're fixing to start paying taxes, and that's gonna really crush you. And you just need to know this. But the people are determined, dog determined. They're like, we don't care. We want, in one ear, out the other ear. We want a king. They were resolute about this. And you know, um, as good parents, we get our good parenting uh, from God. 
And God is a good father. And God does what we have done sometimes with our children. They, they ask for something over and over and over again, and we know what they're asking for is not going to be healthy for them, but we end up giving it to them, and we allow the, the, the natural consequence to be something that is the teaching for them and the training for them. You're coming into candy season, right? And your kid gets a bucket of candy, and I want candy. I just want to eat candy. And you're like, no, you can only have one piece of candy because, of course, mom and dad are going to go through that bucket of candy a little bit later when you go to bed, and we're going to get out the good candy. We're going to you know how it goes. But anyway, I want candy. I want candy. And you're like, no, you can't. And they keep screaming, I want candy. And there's this dialogue back and forth, and you're not getting through. And finally, fine. For the next 24 hours, all you can eat is candy. And they're like, ka-ching, I won. And you're like, yeah, you won. We'll see. So 24 hours go by, and for breakfast, they have candy. And snack time, they have candy. And lunch, they have candy. It's pretty good up to that point. But then snack time comes around, and they get more candy. And it's like, uh, can I have a peanut butter sandwich? No, you want candy. Candy, candy, candy. You can have the candy. And dinner time comes around. Everybody's eating a hamburger, and they, they want a hamburger. But no, they can have the candy. They eat by the time they're about ready for bedtime, their tummy is bloated, and they're sick, and they don't want to ever have another piece of candy. You knew, at, now we don't do this, no, surely we don't do this, but you know, as a parent, you know that the consequence is natural. God is giving a natural consequence to the children of Israel. You want a king? You're begging me for a king? I, I told you it's not a good idea. Samuel told you, the priest told you it's not a good idea. But you want a king that bad? You want a good job? You want a different job? You want a better paying job? You've been begging me for a different job? I'll let you have the job so that you can get the bigger house, so that you can get the bigger car, so you can have sleepless nights, you can have struggles, but I'll let you have it even though I know it's not best for you. I just, I don't know. Maybe there's angles that God takes with us in some ways. Israel makes a foolish choice. They choose a king over God. In fact, they choose what I'm going to suggest to you are three foolish sub-choices to the, to the choice of choosing a king over, over God. And I'm going to put these on the board so that maybe you can take some notes so you can go with me a little bit. First of all, they choose what I'm going to call, they choose power over purpose. They choose power over purpose. What, what do I mean by choosing power over purpose. Um, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people forget, they forget the, the purpose of God in building their nation to begin with. Why did God build their nation? Well, the big picture was God wanted to use their nation so that he could draw people into relationship with him. How in the world was God doing this? Well, by choosing, I'll tell you in a second, but by choosing power over purpose, they make this one small choice that, lead, that leads them down a narrow road. Because it says in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse number 5, page 135 again, it says, they said to him, you are old, your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. I hope you see what's happening here. They're full of fear. They're, they're afraid. They're motivated by fear. They see, you gotta envision this, they see all around them, all of the armies that are being developed, the military uh, might that, that, is, that is assembling all around them, and they're beginning to get afraid. And they're looking at these military uh, operations that are, that are, that are uh, taking place all around them, and they're like, wow, the one common denominator and how they built their military so strong is they have a king. Each one of these nations has a king. Well, if we have a king, because it makes sense to me, if we have a king, then we'll have a mighty army and we'll be able to defeat all of these other armies if they attack us. And so Israel decides what they need is they need power. 
They need power, power that they can see, power that would intimidate other nations. But they forget about the purpose of how God and why God built their nation. There's not hardly one story that I can think of up to this point in the Bible where the nation of Israel wasn't outgunned and outmanned, and yet God gave them victory. God still came through for them. And so up to this point, the purpose was, I'm, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. They wanted the power, though, for themselves, and they were forgetting about the purpose um, of what God has already done, that they were always outnumbered dramatically before. And you know, that's a temptation for us as well, to choose power over purpose. But remember, God's ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. They're higher than ours. The psalmist said in Psalm 20, verse number seven, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And it says in Zechariah 4, 6, not by might, I just said it, nor by power, but by, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The purpose of God is what they should have chosen, but they chose to go for the power of God instead. And the temptation for Israel was to choose the power that they could see over the purpose that they couldn't see. And the choice made them cry out for a king and it changed the course of Israel for the rest of the future. Even though Samuel warned them, even though God told them don't do it, Israel chose power in the form of a king. Eight, take a look at, at um, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 19, page 136, toward the top. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Then we'll be like everybody else. <laughs> Listen, make certain that you get this. The desire to be like everyone else is usually a step away from God. We'll put it on the screen. The desire to be like everyone else is usually a step away from God. God. When we, when we want to blend in with the rest of culture, when we want to blend in and look like the rest of the world, typically we're departing from the will of God because God never called us to blend in. God told us, stand out, go against the flow. All throughout the New Testament, when you read it, you see phrases like being set apart. We're to be set apart. In fact, the word church in the New Testament, in its original language, actually means the called out ones, not the blending in ones. The Bible talks about how we're strangers and we're aliens. We're not of this world. Somebody say amen. And so Samuel and God listen to the people, and the people are saying, we need to fit in. We need to be like everybody else around us. We need to have a king. And so Samuel tells Saul, all right, Samuel, uh, God tells Samuel to go ahead and appoint a king, and they appoint the king, and the first king over Israel, you read about it this week, is Saul. Hit the pause button. I keep saying you read about it this week, and I'm assuming that you're actually doing your homework. And I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hands, but when I was a school teacher, I could tell if people had done their homework by the look on their face. I'm still a school teacher. 
I can tell if you've done your homework by the look on your face. So here's the deal. You've got to read. You've got to study. Don't take my word for it. Don't take any preacher's word for it. Don't take any TV evangelist's word for it. You read, study to show yourself approved before God. It's your responsibility. When the veil was torn in two, we have free access to God. Don't take it for granted because the people we're reading about did not have that opportunity. We do. So study, read. And we're guiding you through this. You can do this. So they chose power over purpose. But that's not the only, that's not the only thing they did wrong. They also chose the circumstances that they were going through over the salvation that God offered. And I'm not talking about salvation like Jesus on the cross. I'm talking about God saving them, God helping them, God giving them victory, God bringing them through a very difficult storm in their life. But they chose to focus on their circumstances instead of focusing on the one who can save them, who can spare them, who can give them salvation. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 12, we read about it in chapter 10 of the story this week, um, there's a transition of leadership going on. Maybe you've experienced this in your own life. Maybe you've experienced a transition of leadership or you've been in a job where a boss got changed and he, he or she comes in and announces they're leaving to go to a different position or a different company or whatever, but here's your new boss. And so there's this transition of leadership. Maybe you were that person. Maybe you changed churches and because you moved um, and you're vocationally, you vocationally took you a different place and so you had to say goodbye to your Sunday school class or whatever you were leading. And what usually happens is there's a speech that takes place, a greeting, some, some kind of passing of the mantle. A passing of the torch, if you will, passing of the baton. Samuel knows that now there's a king. He appointed the king. God allowed that king to be appointed. So the priest knows that there's a king, Saul. And so he is going to transition his leadership over to the king. Well, there's this big uh, shindig. There's this big party that takes place, as there would be when there's a new king that is installed. And this new king, uh, this new king's, at this new king's party, Samuel decides he's going to give a speech, and he does. And in his speech, he realizes that his time of influence is coming to an end. So after Saul is appointed, there's this party, and Samuel says, "I want to remind you," and he's looking straight at Saul. I want to remind you that you need to remember the past. And so what he does is he goes through this litany of what God had brought them through. You see this kind of repetitive cycle with leaders all throughout the Bible, never forgetting from where God has brought us, the miracles that he's brought us through. Reminiscing is important, remembering the goodness of God. And so Samuel, the, the priest, reminds them how God led them out of Egypt how God parted the Red Sea, how God gave them judges to lead them and all the miracles that took place through them. Basically, it's a, it's a rehash or a recap of all the messages we've gone through up to this point. And so he kind of gives it all to them. And then in this very subtle way, he's trying to tell Saul, you know, remember the past. Don't forget who you are. Remember how we got to this point. It was God. It was not man. Remember how you got to this place in your life. It was, it was God it was not man. And then, in, in kind of Samuel's way of, of uh, this crescendo, this um, kind of going for the jugular, on page 140, um, he continues his speech by saying this, at the middle of the page. When you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, Ammonites like the Crips, remember we talked about them before, right? This evil gang of thugs was moving against you. You said to me, 
No, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now here is the king you've chosen. I, I presume he's pointing to Saul, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. So there's this warning that Samuel is taking this opportunity during this celebration, during this party, to warn the king and to warn the people. No matter what God has done for Israel in the past, no matter how powerful or unfailing he has been to them, their current circumstances to them far outweighed their vision of how God had saved them in the past. And we get stuck here too. We get so stuck in, but this is so hard. This is so difficult. It feels so dark. It feels so, so challenging. I, I, I can't breathe. And we focus on our circumstances so much rather than the God who is over our circumstances. And we fall into the same pattern, fall into the same pattern as the Israelites did in the beginning. And we see the same pattern repeated over and over again throughout Scripture. So before we're too condescending and too frustrated and flippant with the, the Israelites, you're so stupid, we have to look in the mirror. How do we respond to circumstances? Do they blind us to God's work in our life? I mean, I'm doing great, and then something derails me, and then it's like, where's God? I gotta, got, 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 got. and we get all panicky and frustrated and angry and disillusioned. Circumstances cause us to forget what God has done in the past and what God's taught us. We forget that he saved us, saved our children, saved our marriages. We forget that he's the one who gives our life purpose. So we forget that he's the one who helped us in the midst of unhealthy relationships, we forget that he is the God who renewed our hope after a terribly difficult season of life. During stress and busyness, God can and he does work in all of it. But the verse that I just read to you is so important because Samuel says that if, if you follow God and the king follows God, everything's gonna be good. What does that tell me? That tells me that there's always hope. You don't have to go down the wrong path. You don't have to choose the wrong thing. You can make the right choice. Um, if you're stupid, there's still a way to come back from stupid, right? Um, does everybody understand? How many besides me just majored in stupid, right? Yes? And so, but God helps you come back from those foolish choices. But there's the last one I want to introduce to you, and that is, this is the really devastating one, is they chose options over obedience. They chose options over obedience. Oh, man. Saul's the king. He's the first king. He's, he's head and shoulders above everybody else, like literally and figuratively. He's like a super tall, young, handsome, uh, strong guy. And he, in the beginning, King Saul obeyed God. He was faithful unto God. You read it this week. He, he listened to Samuel, the priest. He took his, his counsel, the wisdom of the elders' counsel. He fought the enemies of Israel on God's side, then something changes. Something changes. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul is, let me just kind of summarize, Saul is sent by God to go fight against the, the uh, Amalekites. 
And the Amalekites are like, remember the Crips, right? This gang of thugs. But this time God says, I want you to go fight them, King Saul, and I want you to completely, completely obliterate them. In fact, let me give you, this is what God's instructions were, page 142, if you're reading along in the story, toward the bottom. Now, go, this is God's instructions to the king, attack the Amalekites, the Crips, and totally destroy all that belongs to them. And God goes on, do not spare them, put, put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. All right, well, hit the pause button one more time because as you read this, you're probably like, man, that's a cruel God. I'm not sure that's a God that I want to serve. Remember, this is before Jesus. This is God trying to establish within us the fact that he will not tolerate any sin. The Amalekites represent sin. Even the smallest of them, the infants, represent sin. Don't get hung up on the, the uh, extermination of people. God does not want that today. But God is teaching us through this story that even a little bit of sin inside of you is not tolerated and will not be tolerated by a good and gracious and holy and just God, which is why we need a savior. We need a mediator to stand between us and God, that we are forgiven by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. We need that desperately. So God is establishing that story right here. So he tells the very first king, obliterate them annihilate them all, but Saul. In fact, that's what it says on page 143. That's how the verse begins, but Saul. And then I'm gonna tell you what the story says, but let me just tell you this. When you hear, but Troy, and after God said to do this, and then it says, but Troy, you know that what comes next is not gonna be a good thing, right? It's gonna be a terrible thing. But Saul chose options over obedience. Saul, here's where, here's where it comes, everything comes off the rails right here. Everything changes. Instead of destroying everything like God said to, God commanded him to, Saul spares the best and he, he exterminates the, the, the least valuable things. So he, he spares the life of the king, um, the, the king of the crypts. He spares the life of the king and he spares the life of the best cattle and the best sheep and he takes this plunder with him, and I'm not even sure if he's telling the truth. But Samuel, the priest, confronts Saul, the king, and says, dude, what are you doing? What, what is going on? And Saul says, well, I, I kept the best items so that I could offer them as a sacrifice unto God. I don't even know if he's telling the truth here. The Bible doesn't really tell us if he's telling the truth. I could see where maybe he just kind of came up with a story really quickly, or maybe he really intended to. But either way, partial obedience is not obedience. You gotta understand this. Even though what Saul did was not inherently a bad thing, because sacrificing the choicest of animals unto God at that time was a really good thing to do unless... God commands you to do something else. God didn't want sacrifice. God wanted obedience. And this is where you read the key phrase in scripture that we quote all the time, that, that's, that obedience is better than sacrifice unto God. Um, Saul had his own agenda. 
He saw options. But God, God had one, and that was obedience. A few weeks ago, Kyler, our, our assistant campus pastor, several weeks ago now, we had a marriage seminar right here in this auditorium, and there were many, many couples that came to it. And for her senior project, as a level four um, intern and pastor here, she had to do a, a, a major project. And her major project was hosting a marriage seminar. And that marriage seminar, if I'm not mistaken, was based upon the five love languages. And what we did in that, if you're familiar with it, great. If not, the five love languages are a way that we, we speak a language of love ourselves, and too often we speak that same language that we feel loved by to the one that we're trying to love, whether it be a spouse or a parent or a child. So if, if your love, my love language is I really, really, really like to receive gifts, um, it really makes me feel special, um, then I will probably end up buying gifts for Keely and, 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 and showering her with gifts. But gifts don't really mean a lot to her. Sometimes that's nice. You know, but that's not her love language. But if her love language is um, me serving her, like an act of service, like picking up groceries on the way home that uh, that we we needed, that but she it saved her a, cha- a, a trip to the store or whatever, then that might make her feel very loved because that's her love language. So it's really simple. It's it's learning the other person's love language. But your children have a love language. Your parents have a love language. Even people at work have this language, and it's not so intimate as this in a, in a familial relationship. But just knowing what people are. Do they need a word of affirmation? It's important to know that. Do they need uh, some quality time, a little bit of face-to-face time, so you schedule a little bit of meeting time with them? What is it, what will make them feel valued and loved? Let me tell you about God. God has a love language, and God's love language is obedience. That is his love language. Now, I'm not talking about legalism. I'm not talking about you work your way or earn your way to heaven. But what puts a smile on God's face is when you obey him. Israel cried out for a king. And it was marked by all of these wrong choices. And they couldn't see that by choosing a human king, they were choosing against God. They they couldn't see that their lust for power derailed the purposes of God. They couldn't see that. That they couldn't see that that God's they couldn't see God's salvation in the midst of their storm, in the midst of the darkness they were experiencing. They, They couldn't see that. So they chose to go with the darkness. They, Saul, the king, he chose options. Ah, God, I heard what you said to do, but I think I've got a better idea. Maybe I can leverage this for you and for me and for the fellows that are working with me, and I've got some other better ideas. He chose options over obeying God's word. And the question that I have for us from this chapter that just resonates in my spirit is do you want God as your king Or do you want something or someone else? Will you obey or will you rationalize? God wants to be the king of your life. He wants to be the king so badly that the Bible says he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who left heaven and came to earth in order to prove it. And Jesus, who was God in flesh, was beaten by the Roman guards, and yet he stood silently. Jesus was so bloody, so broken, so bruised, it hurt so bad, so humiliated. Jesus had the power to stop it, but Jesus chose the purpose of God over the power that was available. We understand that Jesus chose purpose over power. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, Jesus was in 
total agony at that point. He couldn't breathe. He was suffocating to death. The Bible even tells us he could have called legions of angels to come to his rescue. He, he could have done that. His circumstances, this present darkness was so bad, but Jesus chose, Jesus chose salvation over the circumstances. And, and when Jesus was in the garden, the night before he was betrayed, which is where we believe the real victory took place, Jesus knelt down and he was sweating drops of blood and he prayed, if it's possible, can we do this some other way? I think that's his humanity coming out, introducing, is there another option? But he doesn't even allow the enemy to get a foothold. And he immediately says, even so, not my will but your will be done. So Jesus is saying, I, am, I refuse to choose options over obedience. I will be obedient even unto death on behalf of you. It's flipping the script. We choose power and we choose circumstances and we choose options, but Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm gonna focus on the purpose and I'm gonna, I'm gonna I understand that salvation is nigh. It's right there. And it comes through being obedient to the Father. And when Jesus walked out of the grave, three days later, he proclaimed, I am the only king you will ever need. Father, we love you. Thank you so much, God, for your word that will never, ever, ever return void. God, I pray that you would be the king over our schedules. I pray, God, that you'd be the king over our morals over our relationships. I pray that you be the king over our schools, the king over our workplaces, the king over our homes. And may we prove this, God, to you by the way that we live our lives.